Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. It's a cold day in New York today. It's about 18 degrees when I woke up this morning, a little windy coming over here. We're back into winter. We had a few nice days. Uh, today is episode 95 of Feast Your Ears, and I have Michael Moses Lashinsky joining me by phone. Michael is a bladesmith and knife maker based in Ashland, Oregon. He's been making uh, knives and other cutting tools full-time since 1980, and I'm really pleased to uh, have him join me on the show. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Good to uh, be here. Yeah, so I imagine it's not quite as cold in Ashland as it is in New York today. Uh, it's like spring out here. Um, it's uh, We have a microclimate here in this mountain community, and um, it's been a very mild winter, which Noah predicted years ago, that winters here are going to get milder, a little more like Chico. And um, so it's sunny and almost 50. Oh, nice. Beautiful. Uh, I've been to Ashland a couple of times. Uh, I lived in Northern California in the 90s and would make a trip up there to go to the Shakespeare Festival in Ashland. Yeah. Uh, my last experience yeah. in Ashland, uh, I think I dropped acid on the way there uh, to the Shakespeare <laughs> Festival. I never did that. <laughs> uh, do they still have the Shakespeare Festival out there? Oh, yeah. It's going strong. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely the center of the city. Cool. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I'd love to uh, to hear your story kind of starting from the beginning. So you're actually a Brooklyn native. Yeah, I grew up, believe it or not, in uh, Trump Village. Ah. Um, <laughs> my mother worked for his father, and um, um, they actually were pretty good to her. I ah. have to admit that um, they were pretty nice to her when she left in, um, I think it was 83. Yep. They gave her a chunk of money uh, because they, they wanted to. The father did, Fred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, um, he was well-known as Avance and, um, you know, immature, and yeah. <laughs> I was shocked to see that he became president. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely have heard from other people that knew his father that, uh, you know, his father was a, was actually a fairly good employer and actually did right by people. And unfortunately, yeah. I guess the apple falls far from the tree in that case. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, um, I remember uh, they would give me tickets to the Nick games, and uh, my mother and I would go. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which was very generous of them. And um, she would sometimes tell stories about the Donald, but um, he was kind of on the periphery. Uh, Fred was pretty much dominant in the uh, mid-60s, uh, late-60s. He was kind of just doing his thing. Um, so I left in uh, Brooklyn in 77 after I finished my master's degree and moved to a commune in southern Oregon, not far from here. 
Okay. Where I learned to uh, grow food and, you know, basically all about uh, living on the land mm. in a full-on commune with 10 people and four kids. Wow. And um, the blacksmith lived next door. Got and it. I met him because he would come up in the wintertime. He refused to... Um, he used electricity. He wouldn't drive. So in the wintertime, he got pretty cold sometimes. <laughs> so he would come up to our place, and um, uh, I, I learned to cook there. Got and uh, he would come up when I was cooking, and we would talk a lot. And he, was, um, he had a master's degree in musicology from NYU, and he was a good man. And uh, when I decided to leave the commune, he said, well, you want to try and be my apprentice? Wow. That's, I mean, within, that sounds like an, um, an amazing. Hours, I fell in love with it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like so an amazing are, offer to yeah. to to have access to that. I mean, even, you know, in a in a day and age where things become sort of we become further distanced from working with our hands. I feel like you know every every yeah. year um, that you know that you had the you opportunity know, to really have an old school style apprenticeship with somebody. At the, at the time, I was uh, twenty nine, and. Um, you know, it, we just laughed a lot, and I spent a year with him and uh, continued on afterwards um, developing my craft until, uh, gosh, it's 35 years later. It just got finer and finer. Sure. And um, I think the turning point for me in my career was the when the New York Times article came out in 2001. Yep, yep. And uh, within a day, I had... Over 500 orders that took three and a half years to fill. Wow, <laughs> I mean, it, it is amazing how once that that press comes along. I mean, I feel like I think Bob Kramer has a similar story about you know just sort of doing his thing and working on his his knives himself, and then I think it was Sever in his case. Uh, or maybe Gourmet that wrote ran an article about him, and then suddenly, same story. He had notebooks full of orders that he, you know, took years and years and years. So I'm I'm curious to know. You started out making. You didn't start out making kitchen knives, though, correct? You started making wood no. to, wood tools. No, in those days, uh, all he all this man did without electricity, and when he wasn't horseshoeing, was doing um, whatever came through the shop door. Wow. He um, he just made stuff and uh, sold it sometimes at fairs. And uh, so basically what I was working on was basic Ford skills. I worked with coal, but uh, no electricity. You know, you uh, the hand crack drill and mm. um, everything had to be forged by hand. So um, I developed a line of um, ho- called house jewelry, wow. uh, sold for uh, people for par- apartments, farms, ranches, where you made, you know, I made probably over a five, six-year period, hundreds of things from surveyor stakes. You know, a local surveyor wanted 300 pointed uh, rebar stakes <laughs> to uh, dinner bells to um, to really fancy uh, dinner um, chandeliers. Right. With right. Um, um, and but then that followed up into um, tools, woodworking tools. And uh, made of carbon steel, and then that morphed into kitchen knives. Got it. And that and that's really where what you're doing now full time is kitchen knives. Yeah, I've been doing that for many years now. Um, the last year, I've been working collaboratively, luckily, with a a neighbor who is a a master cabinet maker, a German trained, um, really talented uh, cabinet maker, and we've been uh, doing uh, steak knife sets for high end. Michelin starred restaurants. Yeah, I saw some of them on your site. They're they're beautiful, and the boxes that they come in are really really fantastic. 
Yeah, we're just actually today doing a photo shoot for um, some work we did collaboratively for a restaurant that's opening in, I don't know where it is in San Francisco, Soma. I don't oh. know if that's familiar to you. Sure, yeah, yeah. It's called, it's called Birdsong, and the chef is uh, Chris Blydorn, who used to be with uh, at Atelier Crin. Nice. Uh, we worked for Atelier Crin and did a concept steak knife set for them, and then he took it even further with uh, 25 steak knives, five carving knives, and then a chest with trays that will go to the tables. Oh, to beautiful. So today uh, the the knives meet the chest, and we're going to do a, a photo shoot, which is pretty exciting for me. It's months of work. Yeah. So, you know, I know having having looked at your site, um, and, you know, people should, should check out wildfirecutlery.com to find out more about sort of your process, but it, it appears from your site that uh, the bulk of the work that you do is actually custom, like you're talking about, and not just sort of stocking up on eight-inch chef's knives that you have in stock to sell people. Is that correct? Yeah. The, the, uh, the, what, what, what's happening is that um, uh, in order to be able to do my, my work, I need to be in sort of some kind of decent shape. I can't take a month off and then expect to – I'm 67 years old, so I can't take a month off. It's going to be hard to go back into it. So years ago, I decided that um, I need to stay busy on a semi-regular basis. Mm. So if I don't have any custom work, I decided I was going to do – an uh, in-stock now page so I right. could work on my own work. Yep. So I could do my own designs and not just work designs from people. I did that so that I could work all the time and stay in shape. Yeah. But it turned out that um, at the same time I was able to develop new designs, work with different thicknesses of steel, and it just took off on its own uh, once I decided I was going to put energy into it. But the custom work, like for instance, I just did a commission for um, for a man in Adelaide, Australia, who um, Richard Holston, hmm. who owns a, a, a department store chain there, and he wanted this kitchen knife um, with everything in it, <laughs> <laughs> and he enjoyed the process of collaborating on design, and so do I. Yeah. So we hit it off, uh, you know, over email, and uh, it was a blast working with him. He was a great guy, and he loved the knife. He just loved it. He's going to want more. I mean, and you know, that, that, I mean, no, that's I mean, such a no. wonderful connection that you get to have to the customer and to the knife and the customer to the knife. I mean, you know, I have a, I mean, I, I ran a, a retail shop called the Brooklyn Kitchen for years. We sold lots of knives. I also was in the antiques business for a long time. So I have a, a personal collection and have sold lots of vintage knives. And I love uh, when I find, you know, an antique knife because the yeah. idea of figuring out, okay, it's a, you know, it's either a Green River you know, Russell that I know was made in Massachusetts and I know where that came from, or it's a French Sabatier from the early 20th century. And just thinking right. about what are the stories behind that? I mean, that, that unlike a lot of things today, knives included, you know, if you go to the store and you buy a Wusthof, it's going to cut your carrots, but you don't have any connection to the person or people who actually made that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a tool. Uh, basically, what you're talking about is uh, tools. Men love tools <laughs> and uh, tools are cool. And, um, you know, tools, all tools, especially, have stories. Yeah. And um, um, some people, they they get tools that are just thrashed. And uh, I've also um, been doing some restoration work for a couple of museums and for individuals who who got a set that were kind of trashed. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we decide, you know, we're just going to make them like new again. 
and they're they're new again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they still work great. Absolutely. So, I mean, now at at sixty seven, do you have an apprentice who's sort of coming up and you're teaching your craft to? No, no. Uh, years ago, uh, what what has to happen is that uh, you take on someone who's experienced with what. So I would have to take on someone who's already experienced with high-speed machines and yeah. car, forging carbon steel yeah. and um, who has $15,000 in a year to set aside to work with me. Right. And um, uh, about 10 years ago, um, I had my last apprentice, and I realized that um, I don't need it anymore. That's why I mentioned the New York Times, because that pivotal time meant that suddenly um, – Besides the money that came in, um, I, 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 I got a name. And it, you, didn't, you don't know you got a name <laughs> until people start uh, getting in touch with you yeah. from all over the world. Right. I mean, from, right. uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was amazing. Uh, and the, the web came just exactly that time. I just finished my website in 2001. So, the, you know, it was like uh, a lucky thing. I mean, it was just a, a thing that, um, you know, it was a lot of hard work. Yeah, but uh, so now I get people who want to collaborate, who have money, who want to you know beautiful things, and and I get to take my time, and nobody rushes me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, speaking of the the collaboration and and what people are bringing to the table with what <clears throat> clients want, I noticed on your site some beautiful knives that include you know really high priced materials. I mean, carbon steel uh, in and of itself is not super high priced when you compare it to a lot of the sort of fancier, uh, you know, stainless alloys out there. But I know I saw some knives you made that include sterling silver in the handles, um, right. malachite, other semi-precious stones. So is that is that part of what's coming from those clients when they call you up and they say, listen, I really want this yeah. to be a top-notch object? Right. Um, I, 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 a guy got in touch with me who, um, pro- I, I'm not going to say what company it is, but he he was the lead... He's the lead software engineer for probably one of the biggest um, search engine companies in the world. And he's uh, autistic and he's homebound and he loves tools. And he did all kinds of research into my work and materials and wanted me to, uh, wanted to work with me on designing a set with him. And he, um, you know, got ingots, uh, silver ingots uh, cast in Rhode Island to my specs. Hmm. Um, you know, this is a collaboration from yeah. a dream collaboration. He got um, custom-made um, malachite billets made, and he sent them to me. You know, he sent me a lot of materials, which I actually was able to turn into knives also. Hmm. But uh, And he was willing to pay for all the development, and he ordered a box, too, a very fancy box that took six months to design. He was very into getting just what he wanted. And that's what I mean by um, people who... Who you know who can afford it? Who just want this is just what I want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 it really then becomes something that you know can really become a family heirloom, um, you right. know, for for those people. And and you're talking about a tool that, if well cared for, will last a century or more. I mean, it, there's really yeah. no no reason um, that the average person. I mean, certainly you know chefs do certainly they beat up on their knives, but they also probably use their knives about you know fifty times as much uh, in an average week as you know as the regular person. So they're using that blade, they're sharpening. That blade removing material, whereas in the home kitchen, I mean, even you know, even people who cook a great deal at home probably aren't using their knife realistically more than four hours a week solid. You know, it's not right. they're not cutting a lot, a lot, a lot. 
Yeah, and you actually, your emails to me made me really think about what developed my my cooking at home. And, uh, you know, I actually went back to this time at this uh, hippie commune yeah. um, where I had one day a week working on a, a cook stove. You have to get up and uh, cut your own wood and, uh, you know, work on a giant wood cook stove. You have to bake bread. Um, if you want to make chicken soup, which I did a lot of being Jewish yeah. and the only, it's the only recipe my mother gave me, <laughs> um, you know, kill the chicken, butcher it, um, you know, cook it all day on the stove. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. and but, I never really thought about that before. I appreciate you asking me about that because that really did affect me. I mean, it sounds it very much the same as the, the chicken soup recipe in my family. My dad's grandmother was Hungarian and her recipe started first. You steal a chicken. But basically, basically the same. So go, going back to going back to cooking, actually. So I mean, you know, you you've talked quite a bit about uh, kind of the uh, the the historic or or sort of you know pre-electric, pre-industrial nature of a lot of you know your your life previously. I assume you use electricity now and have you know some of the modern comforts in your shop and in your home. Yeah, it's uh, I electrified in '82. I was lucky enough to uh, meet some people in um, another Oregon town uh, who said, uh, we'll give you a free shop at the back of this barn. Uh, we have 350 sheep. Uh, you can live in your dome. I lived in a dome in this field, and they said, just keep an eye on our sheep. So I did shepherding uh, stuff for them for a bunch of years, and I had electricity there. So I electrified. Uh, I l- luckily, I met a man who... Um, who I became friends with, and he helped me develop the uh, uh, machinery to grind and buff and um, my tools and knives. Yeah, I was very interested on your site. You describe setting up what to me sounds very similar to, you know, a a 19th century factory where you have a single motor driving a single drive shaft with lots of different things on it. Right, uh, a line shaft, yeah. and um, that was all built by hand. And what it turned out to be was just spending time with this man. You know, I never really. My father was always very emo. He was emotionally dead and distant, and so I never got that dad time. And this man, I realized, uh, provided a lot of that. He was a good man, and he taught me a lot about welding and, you know, just being a good person. And uh, we, I wound up at the end with this. Beautiful line shift, which I never could have conceived of. Mm. So, so that's where I learned to collaborate. You know, I realized that collaboration is important creatively, and I enjoy it. So, um, it really was natural here in Ashland to meet uh, the, uh, the 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 cabinet maker's name is Jens Sem S C H M Jens. Mm. Uh, it's a German name, and um, we've been collaborating for 15 years. Uh, whenever the, the opportunity comes up. Um, together and it's and both our work shines because of it. Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, that's a it, it's a it's a it's nice to to understand that so much of your work is driven by that collaboration, whether it's with other craftspeople or with yeah. your clients, and that that's what makes the work interesting rather than just saying, "All right, I got to make ten paring knives today, and I got to make two cleavers," and I right. you know like that's that doesn't right. sound that, that exciting. That's really like working in a factory, right? And, and uh, many chefs that I deal with um, from around the world um, uh, say the same thing, that they're pretty isolated in their work. And to be able to take their skills, their experience, 
and their know-how and put it into a project with someone else who's just as skilled and collaborate and make something really beautiful and functional out of that is just taking it to another level, which is, which is just sensible. It just makes sense. Yeah, very cool. We're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage yep. Radio. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about carbon steel and why you work with that as your blade. Okay. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. And if you're just joining us, today I have Michael Moses Lashinsky on the phone from Oregon. He is a knife maker, tool maker, uh, and has been making knives and tools full-time since 1980. Uh, I think it's awesome, Michael, that you've been you've been doing this so long. I think, you know, in the especially living in Brooklyn in the last 10 years or so, there's been a, a huge return of people being interested i think in the in artisanship and in craftsmanship and you know people get a lot of a lot of credit and a lot of buzz around these things that sometimes i think are people just kind of fooling around to be honest um and so i think it's really you know it's incredible and i applaud you for having really you know you're you're doing it not because you want to be on instagram and because you want people to follow you and you're selling stuff on etsy but you know you've been doing this longer than some of these kids have been alive honestly so well it's 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 a it's a, a lifestyle choice. It it goes with my personality, uh, you know, the the with my karmic arc. Yeah. Um it just it fits right in with uh, where it where that's at and um there's no way around it. Yeah. So on your site, you say, I only use carbon steel for obvious reasons. Um, and as someone who has worked with knives and sold knives and actually made some knives myself, I know what those reasons are, but I would love to hear from you. Um, you know, what is the reason that you only work with carbon steel? Well, um, my first uh, experience with carbon steel was watching the, uh, in, this was 81, watching the master blacksmith. Uh, he did two projects in a row, which you know, he just walked in and said, I've got to make uh, this uh, set of nippers for an elephant. And, huh. um, you know, I don't know if you know what a nipper is, but it's um, you know, it's a blunt edge tool that you can use on a horse. Most of them have a, a inch and a half wide head. Okay. This one had four inch head. Wow. <laughs> and he spent hours forging out this out of tool steel, this thing, and then he polished it up. And I didn't realize when it came out of the forge, it was black, and yeah. we didn't have polishing tools, and he used a file to clean it up, and I saw underneath it was silver. Hmm. And, uh, you know, this was an old um, uh, Model A spring. Oh, okay. And then um, a little while later, the next project he did was a knife, 
where he forged a Bowie knife for this guy who was there. And then the guy took it home and he brought it back the next day fully polished. He did it by hand. Wow. And I was just gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I just, you know, so um, when um, I was thinking of expanding from uh, just forging mild steel, um, one of the things I thought about was making wood carving tools because I like wood carving. And, um, you know, the natural thing to do would be to to use carbon steel nowhere in anywhere of tool making or anybody that I met who made tools. No one talks about stainless steel. That was just, you just don't use it. It's just not there. Yeah. It's just not a part of anything. It is for, you know, mass production, but, you know, when you're making handmade tools, carbon steel is, is the best steel because it, um, it goes in the middle of the road, sort of like a Dallas steel. Yeah. Um, it's not too hard and not too soft. Yep. Yep. And, and I find, I mean, having, having sharpened knives made of all kinds of different steel, I love the way that your, you know, your, your 1084, your 1057 or or 1056 takes an edge. I mean, it just, it takes such a keen edge that you can take, you know, I mean, you can take a, a carbon steel paring knife and you can put an edge on that that you can use to shave with. Um, and you can't do that with a stainless. Right. Well, uh, you you could if you wanted to put the time in and you knew how. Sure. But most people who get in touch with me who want to, me to um, work with them, they're just so frustrated with stainless steel, mainly because they don't know how to put an edge on it. You can put an edge on it, but it's hard. Yeah. I mean, uh, stainless steel is like a rock. Yep. I make uh, stainless steel bolsters and... Um, Stuff is like 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 working on a rock. <laughs> Sounds like the Malachite's probably easier to work with. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so you know how many how many knives, and I, I know that it takes a different amount of time based on size and and shape and things. But on average, how many knives do you make a year? Oh, it, it all depends. Um, I really would not answer that. Yeah. I uh, I really I don't know how to handle on that. Um, I, I really don't know. I'm, I, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I guess I can what, barely remember what I made last month. <laughs> All I'm doing is focusing on what's happening right now. Sure. I mean, I, I guess what I'm what I'm uh, sort of getting at is that I want listeners to understand that you know the making of a knife is not um, it's not a simple or or necessarily fast process, and that it really yeah. does require physical labor, um, you know, from, from somebody. I mean, that's what I'm sort of getting at. So, you know, I'm I curious. I, average, I can average um, one or two a day. I used to be able, when I was in my 40s and 50s, I used to be able to make uh, three and four a day or more. Mm. But now I average about one or two a day, and um, that's a full day. And um, in addition, the work is very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you're working with high speed machines and, um, and, um, edges, um, you've got to be very careful and aware of what you're doing. And, um, environmentally, you've got to wear a full face mask uh, and, uh, gloves and, um, cover my ears. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's loud for sure. <laughs> working in those, yeah. working in those environments. So yeah, you know, and, and, um, and I can take my time these days. So, you know, I can take time off in the middle of the day and eat lunch or do something. Cool. And uh, and so do you work in the shop? Are you there five days a week, six days a week? 
generally these days I'm producing four to five days a week. I try to take off at least a day or two a week, and I save. Uh, like I like to cook, and I like to cook once a week for the whole week. And so today is my day. I'm going to make ramen soup and uh, with handmade noodles, and um, uh, so I'm going to take the day and uh, you know do household chores and etc. Are you following the the recipe in that great video you sent me of the the Chinese chef hand pulling those noodles? <laughs> Weren't those great? That was amazing. It's a wonderful, wonderful video. I'm glad you turned me on to that. I don't, I don't speak Chinese, so I don't know her name or what the YouTube channel is. Me but neither. the link was incredible. But I'll, I'll try. We hopefully we can put it. Maybe we can link to it off of the uh, the show page when this show is up online. Someone sent that to me from Singapore. Oh wow! I did some some work there for a, a restaurant called Burnt Ends. Hmm. I'm an Australian chef there, and he sent me that uh, that video. So, you know, so, so today's your day to cook. And so what's, you know, what are you working on in your shop now? I mean, do you, do you work on knives, uh, as an assembly line or do you st- do one knife at a time, start to finish? Oh, only one at, one at a time. Uh, uh um, the Christmas, I usually sell out on everything that's, uh, available, okay. you know, to sell immediately. So, uh, just yesterday I finished a, a nine inch by two and a half inch kitchen knife and a uh, two and a half inch by eight inch cleaver. I made them two together and they match. And uh, so I, I, um, I don't photograph them. I scan them and I put them up on my site uh, to sell now. And um, pretty much I'm in full stock on that. So um, next project, uh, we have to do the photography session for the birdsong uh, collaborative project uh, this afternoon. And then, um, I'm kind of open to what to do next. Um, it could be any number of things from, uh, you know, working on machinery to um, I might make a Metaluna. Um, I, I know many designs. Um, I've been intrigued by um, developing a new uh, recipe for clients for their own um, finish for knife handles at home. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, so um, I might make a video on that of uh, olive oil and beeswax. Ah, very, very cool. Um, well, we're just about out of time. Is there anything else that you didn't have a chance to cover that you want to mention? I mean, it sounds like uh, yeah. if anyone's in San Francisco and, and will be eating at Birdsong, uh, perhaps they will get to actually handle your, your beautiful steak knives. Yeah. The, uh, st- we also have steak knives on Lummi Island at um, Willow's Inn. Blaine Wetzel and I did some collaborative work a few years ago, and um, if they're in Singapore, they can go to Burnt Ends. Atelier Kren in San Francisco and Birdsong. And um, uh, they can always get in touch with me through my website. And, you know, I really appreciated uh, reading about you and what you're doing there. You know, I, I haven't been to Brooklyn since 1988. I had no idea. <laughs> well, you should come. It's, it's, a lot, it's a lot different than it was back then, I'll tell you. Oh, my God. And it's very cool. I mean, it's really, really cool. I think I'd fit in well there. I'm not going to move back there. But no, of course. It seems... Uh, very cool and good on you. you know, well, do do great. keep in touch. Uh, you know, if if you are back in Brooklyn, it'd be great to great to see you. I mean, just so just to give you a picture, um, I am sitting in the Heritage Radio Network studio, which is in two shipping containers in the backyard of a pizzeria called Roberta's that was <laughs> built in a, an old auto body shop in Bushwick. 
on Moore Street off the Morgan stop on the L train. And this restaurant is packed <laughs> every day of the week, if you can believe that people are coming all the way out here to eat pizza. So, you know, there, as, a, as a guy growing up in Brighton Beach, I never even once went to Bushwick. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even know it. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> well, Michael, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, and I definitely want to just say again, Fair. people should check out wildfirecutlery.com um, and they can read more about Michael and his process and how to get in touch with him if you want to get some some custom knives made. Um, one last thing I'll say is, uh, you know, if I get a lot of orders, I'm going to put up a wait list. Sure, of course. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Okay, Ashley, take care. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to David Tatashore, who engineers this show. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to like the show on your platform of choice, and please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me or message me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.